Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name's Andy, as Mark said. I'm the assistant minister here. It's a great privilege um, to be able to open up the next part of Luke's Gospel uh, with you this afternoon um, as we continue with our series on the road with Jesus. Um, what we're actually going to try and do is see what God is saying from the very start of chapter 12, 12 verse 1, through to the end of that second reading. Uh, so that's 80 verses. Um, so let's pray, because we're going to need God's help as we see what he has to say to us uh, from that today. Father, thank you in the, so much that you uh, speak to us, that we have um, in this book the very words of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear him. Amen. So sometimes in life, the same event means something totally different depending which side you're on. Think back um, to last summer and the final of the Euros, right? Biggest football match most of our lives. One match, one event, one result. Italy beat England on penalties. But two completely different results, outcomes, depending on which side you're on, right? Here's the England team. Devastation, right? Defeat, emptiness. And here's the Italy team. Joy, celebration, togetherness, right? One event, two completely different results, depending on which side you're on. Well, in today's passage, Jesus says that his coming is that kind of event. We didn't have it read, but it's a really striking verse. Um, Luke 12, 51. If you've closed your Bibles, do open up again, page 1046. Luke chapter 12, verse 51 I wonder how many of you guessed Jesus would say this. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus' coming, the coming of the kingdom of God in and through Jesus brings division because what it means depends on where you stand. In today's passage, Jesus says that if you're choosing to live life without him, his coming means a devastation deeper much deeper than what you just saw on the face of the England players. But at the same time, Jesus says in today's passage that if we're with him, if we're on the road with him, if we're walking with him, then his coming means a joy and a celebration much deeper, much richer, so much better than what we saw on the face of the Italy players. So to start with, we're going to look at what Jesus says when he talks to the crowds in this passage, and that's in chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, and then 12, 54 through to 13, 9. The crowds are these guys, they're listening to Jesus, so in that sense, they're like everyone here today, they're here, to, here listening, but they're not sure what they make of him. They're not sold on him yet. And to the crowds, Jesus speaks of the coming judgment. Jesus speaks of the coming judgment. So if you look with me at chapter 12, verse 15, we're now back over the page on 1044. Jesus says to them, that's the crowds, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This is his message, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Well, let's look at the parable Jesus tells to explain. Verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. 
Then he has a bright idea. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and I'll store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you've plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Good plan. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. This very night, your life will be taken from you. The rich man had fooled himself. He fooled himself because he thought that by storing up grain, he had security, that he'd guaranteed himself future happiness, years of eating and drinking and being merry, and he had forgotten the reality of death, forgotten the reality of the coming judgment of God. Greed is a trap, Jesus says, because money, money, wealth, possessions cannot give you security in light of the coming judgment of God. You're going to die, Jesus says, and then what use is all that stuff? But here's the thing. Jesus says, actually, there's nothing outside of him, nothing outside of turning to him and trusting in him that gives us security in the face of the coming judgment. Nothing at all. Uh, Come with me to the start of chapter 13. Back over the page again. Right, so, so the crowd tell Jesus about some Galileans who have been killed. And Jesus answers, Jesus replies to them, verse two, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus is saying, you guys, you've come to ask me, you see these guys who got killed, what did they do wrong? What did they do that was so bad to deserve that? And Jesus says, they were absolutely no worse than you. You're going to die too. You're going to perish unless you repent. And that's because none of us are rich towards God by nature. Did you see at the end of the parable, Jesus says, this is what what happens to people who aren't rich towards God? By nature, I'm not rich towards God. Do I love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? Do I give God the thanks and honor and glory that he deserves as the one who created me and sustains me? No. None of us do. And so unless we repent... Unless we turn, that is. Repent just means turn. Come to Jesus Christ and say, I need forgiveness. Please forgive me. Unless we do that, we too will all perish. In one of his sermons on this passage, the theologian Augustine, the fifth century theologian Augustine, he draws out the fragility, the insecurity of human life without God in the face of death. Listen to what he says. We walk in the midst of chance. If we were made of glass, we should have to fear chance less than we have. What is more fragile than a vessel of glass, and yet it is kept and lasts for ages? For though the chance of a fall is feared for the vessel of glass, yet there is no fear of illness or old age for it. We, therefore, are more fragile and more infirm you see what Augustine's saying? He's saying, when you think about it to start with, you think, what could be more fragile than a glass vase? And yet there are vases all over the world that have been around much longer than any human being. 
So in some profound sense, we are more fragile than glass. And actually, I don't think that's a, it's a coincidence that that thought comes from the mind of someone thinking and speaking 15 centuries ago, because there are many benefits, of course, massive benefits to modern medicine, to improvements in life inspectors that we've seen over the last few hundred years. But the reality is that modernity does its utmost to hide death from us, to hide from us the fragility of human life. We quarantine death in hospital where we don't have to see it and where we can pretend that we might kind of control it. Or more recently, with the rise of the tr transhumanism, this idea that one day, just round the corner, technology is actually going to crack death, right? You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. There is no security outside, no lasting security outside of Jesus Christ in the face of death in the face of the coming judgment. So unless we repent, unless we turn to him, Jesus says we will perish. But if we do turn to him, if we choose to life, live life with him, well then everything's completely different. The same event, his coming, the coming of God's kingdom, means something completely different. Because when we see Jesus speak to his disciples in this passage, we see him speak not of the coming judgment, but of the coming kingdom. He speaks of the coming kingdom. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 32. We're going to look at 80, we're looking at 80 verses. We're going to spend a good chunk of time here in this one verse because here Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That means if you're here today, this is the wonder of scripture, if you're here today and you're trusting in Jesus, Jesus says these words to you. So let's listen to him together. Chapter 12, verse 32. Do not be afraid. I don't know what you're scared of. I don't know. Short term could be... Um, Cost of living crisis, energy bills, could be Russia-Ukraine blowing up, could be the UK economy blowing up in some way, I don't know. I don't know what you're scared of. Longer term, I don't know what you're afraid of. Is it not going through uni? Is it not making it in your career? Is it aging parents? Is it what, what Jesus knows. Whatever's just coming to your mind, Jesus knows it, and he says to you, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, little flock. You're not alone, Jesus says. You're not walking through life, facing life on your own. God is with you. God is a shepherd who cares for you and protects you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father, and God is more than a shepherd, Jesus says. In Christ, he's your father. The best things about your dad, all the things you wish your dad had been, God is. If you're trusting the Lord Jesus, God is. His love for you is unfathomable. And it's unbreakable. So do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom.
out of that unbreakable, unfathomable love, God our Father has been pleased to give us the kingdom. None of us were rich to God, but in Christ, God gives us the riches of his eternal kingdom, of life with him in a perfect world forever. And it's a gift, and he's pleased to give it. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Not that we've deserved it, not that we've earned it, just given it in Christ. And that gift, if we think about the picture of ourselves on the road with Jesus, that gift is the light that might seem quite far off, kind of end at the end of the road, but when we look on it, it's so luminous, it's so bright, that actually it transforms everything before us. It shines back from eternity and it transforms our death. We remain mortal, of course, but our lives are no longer fragile. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Don't you love that? After that can do no more. Just saying, you don't have to be afraid of death because the God who numbers every hair on our heads will remember us and bring us into his kingdom. And so, so if we're in Christ, to die is not to perish. To die is not to perish. Instead, in the words of the Anglican funeral service, death is a gate to life. To die is not to perish. Death is a gate to life. We've got no need to be fearful of death. And we don't need to worry about life. Listen to verse, uh, chapter, two, chapter 12, verse 22. Jesus says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Don't worry about the necessities of life, Jesus says. Why not? Punchline in verse 30. Here it is. Your father knows that you need them. Do not worry. Will not the God who feeds the ravens and clothes the lilies take care of his beloved children? Will not the father who is pleased to give us the kingdom, give us what we need today and tomorrow and the day, day after that and the day after that and the day after that into eternity? If only it were that easy, right? It's so hard to not worry. It's not, wor- not, it's not worrying things really hard, right? It's particularly hard right now in this cultural moment. It feels like everything's going on. And, and I think it's for two reasons. One is the reality of what is happening, right? It feels like we're in this state of flux and change where it's hard to get any kind of foothold Stuff is really getting harder. Bills are really going up, right? There's a reality that makes us want to worry, but also the world is telling us that we should worry. Let me give you an example. If you read a BBC News article on the cost of living crisis or energy bills, here's how it works. The first bit of the article will be the facts, and then there'll be a long interview with someone who's really worried. Right? Here are the facts. This person's worried. You should be worried too. Next time you open an article, next time you turn on the news, next time you open a bell, why not bring Luke 12.32 to mind? Why not commit it to memory? Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 
So Jesus calls us to see our lives, if we're walking with him, in light of the coming kingdom. But he actually calls us to more than that. He doesn't want us to just see our lives in light of the coming kingdom. He wants to live out our lives in light of that coming kingdom. To live differently. And that starts with the reorientation of our hearts, a reordering of our loves. Verse 29, Jesus says, do not set your heart on what you will eat and drink. Do not make the things of this life your ultimate concern, your number one priority. You don't have to. Your Father in heaven's got that. He's got you, I promise, Jesus says. Don't set your heart on these things. Instead, verse 31, seek the kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not set your heart on the things of life. Set your heart on the kingdom of God. Make your life about God. His priorities, his purposes, what he's doing in the world, where he is directing history to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives us a picture to help us see what that means. That's what verses 35 to 48, which we didn't have read, are are, are about. The picture is that of a servant. Verse 36, Jesus says, we're to be like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Now, Jesus isn't wanting us to just do nothing and wait for him. The point is that a servant doesn't act out of their own plans and priorities, right? A servant acts in line with their master's plans and priorities, trusting their master to care for them. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, in light of the kingdom, your father's pleased to give you the kingdom. So you don't have to to make your number one priority your plan, what you're up to. You can make it what God is up to. That's what it looks like to be a faithful servant. And here's a practical example, and Jesus doesn't pull his punches. Look at verse 33 with me. Jesus says to the disciples, says to those who would follow him, on the road with him, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. There are, I think, two errors that you can fall into here. One is to think that that means that Jesus is telling us to go home and literally sell everything, empty our houses, just get rid of it all, get rid of everything we've got, right? And Basil the Great, the fourth century theologian, shows you what's wrong with that. He says, um, we're not to cast away as evil what we possess, right? That would, that would imply that, that, that things are evil and we just need to get rid of them. But God is a good God who's created a good world. Things aren't evil, they're good. So that's error one. It doesn't mean we've got to cast everything away as if it's evil. Error two is, did you notice that Jesus doesn't say it's all right if you have loads and loads of stuff and loads and loads of money as long as you don't love it too much. It's all right as long to have, you can have, a, you can have a Ferrari in the garage, but as long as you love God more than your Ferrari, I don't care. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Basil the Great, again, is really helpful. He says this, if everyone receiving what is sufficient for his own necessity would leave what remains to the needy, there would be no rich or poor. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying if everyone just received what they need and then gave the rest to the needy, 
No one will be poor. Everyone will have what they need, right? And that makes total sense when you step back to the big picture of this part, this passage, right? Because what is God doing? What is, you know, what is the master doing with stuff, with material things? He is making sure that all of his creatures, and particularly his children, have what they need. He's feeding the ravens, he's clothing the lilies, he's caring for his children, right? So what does it look like to be faithful servants of that master, to follow in our father's footsteps, to take what he has given us and do the same? To ensure that all his creatures, and particularly his children, have what they need. Now here's where I've got to level with you, because so far, in some sense, so far so good in my head, right? Like, that sounds right to me. I think that's exactly what, I think that's what Jesus is getting at. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I have no idea what that actually means on the ground I should do right now. <laughs> like, does it mean that I should go home and, and like, look through my house and see the stuff I don't need and try and give it away or give it to a charity shop or sell it and, and give away the money? Is, is that what it means? Yeah, I think so. I think it probably does. Does it mean that we need to get over our peculiarly, peculiarly English horror of talking about money so that if somebody was sitting at the other end of the pew to you or across the aisle, they would feel like if they needed some stuff or some money or some help, they could ask you? And you would feel like you could ask them so that we might make sure that as children in God's family, we have what we need? Yeah, yeah, I think it does mean that. Does it mean that I should go home, empty my savings account, and give it all to a charity like Christians Against Poverty that support the poorest in society and share the gospel? I don't think so, but maybe I'm just greedy. I don't know. Let's work it out together, because this stuff matters. It's hard to know what it would mean to put into practice, have what you need, give the rest to the needy, but that's not an excuse to not try. It's not an excuse to not think about it. It's not an excuse to wave our hands. Because Jesus is really clear that this matters, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus calls those who are on the road with him to, to see life in light of the coming kingdom and to live their lives in light of the coming kingdom. But maybe all this talk of the coming kingdom or uh, eternity or heaven or treasure in heaven, it's just really abstract, right? It's hard to kind of get our, our hearts round, and so it's hard to get excited about it. It's hard to think, yeah, I want that to be my number one priority. Yeah, I'm willing to give stuff up for that. I'm willing to live for that. Well, the wonderful news is that the Holy Spirit has given us in the final verses we're going to see today, chapter 13, 10 to 21, an insight, a, a picture, the, the, a taste of the reality of the kingdom. What it looks like on the ground, what Jesus came to do, what the kingdom looks like in the flesh, in the lives of real people. The reality of the kingdom. Look with me um, at chapter 13, verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman who had, who, who, one woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Imagine for a minute being that woman. Crippled for 18 years, chronic pain for 18 years. Maybe some of us don't have to imagine. Unable to stand up straight, unable to look another human being in the eye for 18 years. Verse 12. 
When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Imagine after 18 years, Jesus touches and your back unfurls and every vertebra slots into its right place and you stand up straight and you look Jesus Christ in the face and you praise God. That's the reality of the kingdom. But it gets better because that healing, spiritually speaking, is a picture of what Jesus has done for each one of us, what he's done for me, what he's done for you if you're trusting in Jesus. Because did you see that that this woman, this woman, her crippling was, was a result of spiritual bondage. In verse 16, Jesus asks, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free? She's been bound under the power of sin and Satan for 18 years. Before we received the healing touch of Christ, we too were bound. We too were trapped. We were crippled, spiritually speaking, curved in upon ourselves under the power of sin. Until Jesus reached out his hand and set us free. That we might behold him and praise God for all that he's done for us. That's the reality of the kingdom. But it gets better than that. Because it's not just that this is the reality of the kingdom for that woman. It's not just that it's, it's a picture of, of what God has done for each one of us. It's also a glimpse, a taste, a seed in the language of the parables of what Jesus will do one day when he returns to bring in the kingdom of all its fullness. Because on that day, well, on that day we'll be set free from all the effects of sin, from all of them. No more mourning, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. And we will see God, a treasure beyond all compare, and we will praise him forever and ever. That's the reality of the kingdom. And so if you're on the road with Jesus, that's what's at the end of the road. It really is. That's what's at the end of the road. That's the light. So luminous, so bright, that shines back and changes everything. That's what we're seeking. That's what we're living for. That's what we're giving stuff up for. That's the kingdom. That's what's at the end of the road. And if you're not on the road with Jesus and you're not walking with him while he is reaching out his hand for you to set you free all you have to do is turn to him turn away from death without him from perishing without him and turn to life with him now and forever Let's pray together. Father, thank you 
that your love for us, broken, sinful people, is such that you have been pleased to give us the kingdom if we trust in the Lord Jesus. Help us to see our lives in light of the coming kingdom and to live our lives in that light to the glory and praise of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.